start with something. Show me what happened, right? Show me what, what's going on as a result of that. Don't come to me expecting any answers. Don't go to any investor. And like, you know, that, again, that doesn't apply to me as much because I'm talking to an average of a PhD or somebody who's just studied so much in a field uh, or been in a field for so long um, that that doesn't happen. But this is just for the general audience. This can't be it. There has to be more. Wait, am I crazy? No. If you're yearning for more and working hard to make your dreams a reality, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Dreamcatchers. It's the only show committed to helping you self-actualize and then transcend, leaving you with the legacy you've always desired. Listen in on conversations with successful philanthropists, entrepreneurs, and founders every week as we connect with them for inspiration, education, and direction. Your host, Jerome Myers, is here to help you exit the matrix and transform into a leader of your own revolution. The question is, do you believe your dreams should be real? Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Dreamcatchers podcast. I'm your host, Jerome, and you're in for a treat. We flew out to the West Coast. We've got my man, Neil Moody, in, and I feel like it's Seattle, Washington, but it might be a small city outside. How are you, Neil? How are things good, out there? Good. Good. It's it's Neil Modi, by the way. Modi. I'm, I, I put the I'm extra O in. <laughs> I put the extra O in. I I failed. I failed English. <laughs> Went to engineering school. Modi. Um, There's not two O's, man. There's one O. Sorry about that. No trouble. We're coming to you from Bellevue, Washington today, which is an interesting city, city that probably had a bunch of success because of uh, ex-Microsoft employees. Uh, Microsoft made uh, like 10,000 millionaires and I think like half of them helped build this city at some point. So it's a really kind of fun place to sit. And I live halfway between Amazon and Microsoft, roughly, if you look at it geography, geographically. Wow. Bellevue. How far is that yeah. from Seattle? 25 minutes. Okay. We're outside yeah. of Seattle. <laughs> I mean, to like suburbs. Seattle property, we're probably like the beginning of Seattle, 16, 18 minutes and then 25 to downtown. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. So we we got the geography figured out and the people are like, okay, so he messed up his name. Does he really know this guy? <laughs> it's right? okay. Jerome and I are connected deeply. It's totally okay. <laughs> Tell me whatever you really want. Who's this guy? Is, look, Neil has the wildest story, y'all. And so look, before we get too deep, we do things unconventional here. How can the listeners get in contact with you? Because when they hear about this journey, they're going to be clamoring for an opportunity to spend some time with you. Yeah, you know, find me on LinkedIn. It's probably one of the very best ways. Add me there, uh, Neil Modi, and we'll put, put this in the show notes. And I think I'm already connected to Drum. Also, you can find me on my website at zoiccapital.com. That's where I invest in life sciences. And uh, I'm sure there'll be more websites in short order. There we go. There we go. Okay. So the, when, if I had to put a label on you, I call it serial entrepreneur, right? And you do it at a level I haven't seen many people do it. And so when people hear that, they're like, yeah, what does that mean? Like, is that a hundred K a year? Is that $50,000 a year? Like most entrepreneurs? No, ladies and gentlemen, this guy's done it and he's done it big. So we weren't always entrepreneur. You started out with jobs and then you did some sales stuff. Kind of give us the progression from leaving school through kind of your career so they get the framework and yeah, have some yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, um, background. Much, 
much to the chagrin of my Indian parents, at, at, you know, at the time I dropped out of school, 80% of the Indians in this country had a secondary degree. You know, my sister had graduated number two in law school. And I, <laughs> I went in and I said, you know, I'm going to drop out. And they're like, huh? What's going on? <laughs> you know, I think it was the, the second saddest I've ever seen my dad, right? Like the first being his, his mother dying. His father died before, you know, when I was really, really young. So I remember it. But like literally that, that was kind of like pin drop silence in that house for a number of days, right? Maybe weeks. And I, you know, I said, hey, I'm going to open a cell phone store. Even more like, huh? Why? And uh, (laughs) (laughs) I had uh, been the uh, number one salesman in the country at CompUSA while I was going to college. I started out in community college and I went to ASU. And then I said, this really isn't for me. Maybe to go back again, I might get a degree in economics and psychology. Those are kind of the things I think a lot about just based on what I do. So I decided I was going to start the cell phone store after working at a friend's shop for 60 days to be helpful. And suddenly I uh, made a sale to a local Walmart store. They had, they had pagers for their deaf employees and it made it so it was much easier to work with these guys and they became like super efficient folks, right? Just, they just needed instruction. You don't need to give a lot, just a little instruction. And I said, you know, I bought myself a new watch and I said, you know, what? it's time for me to start my own business. Literally, that's what I said after I put the watch on. But that was the first thing I thought. It wasn't actually what a cool watch. So Decided to start my own cell phone store. Uh, had no idea what I was doing. And it was a really interesting moment. The market had just gone down for renting commercial real estate in Arizona. And I was able to negotiate a much better lease. Somebody else you know, went out. I bought all of their display stuff. And so some of, I guess, the lesson that I hope you take away from some of this is buy at the right price. Uh, whatever that means for you. Buying at the right price isn't necessarily just a transaction. It's a moment in time for the market. It's um, definitely a better deal than other people could get. Sometimes that's through your own effort. Sometimes that's not. Um, Sometimes that's through a combination of other factors and environmental, external factors. But you've got to be on the lookout and be discerning for it. So gross to a million my first year, expanded way too quickly. uh, And from there, opened two stores. And I didn't understand basics about planning. And um, shortly after I opened one of the stores that was right off the freeway, the freeway closed for construction to expand it. <laughs> and so my traffic dried up overnight. <laughs> anyway, I sold all three of the stores and I'd realized that my happiest customers were real estate investors at the time. And this is like 2003. So of course you're going through a good cycle. This is before the cycle pops. And I said, you know, I can do that. I can do this. So, you know, sold my first company, had my first exit, if you will, sold my first company. But then I went and I, you know, the next guy who walked in my cell phone store who had something interesting to say about real estate, I said, hey, I want to come do this with you. And I became his 50-50 partner. We invested in um, twenty, about 20 uh, fix and flips and uh, residential houses um, under 350000 at the time in Phoenix, Arizona, Metro, Phoenix Metro, Maricopa County. And I learned a lot about what it took to, to fix things too. Through the, the cell phone stores, I'd learned about distribution and hiring and advertising through the real estate. I learned a little bit about deal making. We hit 2005. We sat out of the market. Uh, we ignored all of our criteria that we'd built over a number of years. I think we started investing in, in right around 2005 and everything fell in Phoenix. You know, it fell across the country, but it was harder hit there. And we looked at one of the properties we'd sold for like 160K that we'd bought for, you know, 130K and it needed like 5K worth of work. And we were out of it, right? It was pretty easy. 
it had gone as high as 215 through four more buyers and it had sold at, at the bottom at 40. Now, the one thing I didn't think about was that the, the house couldn't have been built for 40, right? The, the dirt alone was probably worth 40. And, um, you know, I exited uh, on that house. I, I think I ended up losing like 30K. And I did that on a few different deals when I really should have just told them. Um, I saw the market was going up, sold at the wrong time. Very common mistake for early investors. I was no different, right? Um, kind of not learning from historic patterns. And so, you know, I kind of think today a little bit more about buy and hold and buy and build some long-term value because I was doing the work. Now it's about value capture. The worst thing, as a friend of mine says, is being right and not being able to make money on it. <laughs> right? A very good friend of mine says this. <laughs> so from there, of course, natural transition from being into real estate investment. I bought some, some lots and some land and some lease back to builders and did, did a couple of different kinds of deals there. Commercial building with a, a double close. I signed a discotheca for five minutes at one point before the recorder collected it. Just a commercial building. Of course, the next thing you do from that in your career is you start a high-temperature superconductor company when you're a college dropout, right? Who who, who had to pass-fail physics. <laughs> I um, One of the things I guess I'd learned a long time ago, and, and I think we've talked a little bit about this, Jerome, over time, is I really learned to follow my instincts. And so I met this guy who had an idea, um, and I thought he was right. And I really didn't know anything about anything um, related to it. Heck, I'd never heard the word superconductor. It wasn't like I... The only... Relation I had to superconductor at the time was the hoverboard from Back to the Future. But even that I didn't know was a superconductor for the mechanism of action. So went into a field I knew nothing about, grew this company, uh, got to 80 employees, a bunch of contractors, raised 22 million. And along the way, we filed a couple thousand patents as well. Uh, patent, patent claims, not patents. The body count of a patent matters more than just the individual patent. Like how many unique ideas are there and how many dependent ideas on some other idea that you're just having a derivative off of matter. So I took that company to a fairly good value. It's still growing today. It's run by a former mentor of mine. I'm pretty excited about the work they've been able to do and uh, hopefully, and not just a little bit about superconductors, but hopefully being able to make them ubiquitous. It's considered high temperature superconductors are considered one of the three holy grails of science. And being able to reduce the resistance from point A to B down to zero makes it so you can move electricity much more inexpensively. You might remember this from physics. You may not. doesn't really matter. I didn't know any of it. So you're ahead of me, even at this moment when, from when I started my journey there. And so like big place that we all know, heat, friction, and vibration exist in power consumption is our computers. They heat up. We need fans for them. But imagine we could get that to zero. You could change the architecture. You could do all sorts of different things. The other place we know uh, superconductors from is MRIs. Uh, an MRI takes an entire room just to be able to get a superconducting magnet cool enough to be able to work. So they only work at kind of extreme temperatures. Getting them to work at normal temperatures will allow for a real hoverboard and a desktop MRI. Hey, I hurt myself playing basketball. Let me get on and order the Uber for MRI. They come the next day or that day. The images go to your doctor, uh, your teledoc doctor. You say, hey, what's going on? We're really close to that world. I invest in that new world uh, as well. And it's not as far out as when I first started thinking about it. So from being a high temperature superconductor, a material science entrepreneur, decided to uh, start a venture capital fund. 
I was really shocked that GE and Siemens weren't banging on our door to write us checks. Forget valuation. They weren't willing to, to they, weren't, they took a meeting kind of, I think, uh, out, of, uh, out of obligation because they knew we were somebody or somebody knew some, some, the, the VC arms of both these people. But we had a chance to change the way MRIs, which is a big piece of, you know, a business unit of theirs, completely existed and nobody was funding us. And so I learned that you've got all these really interesting medical devices out in the world that have had all sorts of research. And these guys, there's not that many people funding them. So I said, that's got to be what I take on next. So there you go. I started a fund. Didn't know anything about anything again. In a niche of niche of niches. <laughs> and said, okay, I need to learn about this. Spent years building deal flow. I, I said, in order to write a check in this field, I had to see 500 deals a year. And then I could start writing my first checks, right? So to just give you an idea between Canada and the United States, there might be, we'll call it 6,000 deals done a year. Um, but that's even just ones that are 25K a piece getting checks. So if we say, we'll call it real deals, I'll say that's probably about 3,000, uh, maybe 4,000. Hard to you want to see all of them. All and I, you know, you know, I want to see the best ones. I, I'm I'm more particular about what I want to see today. I want to see, uh, I want to meet entrepreneurs who have exited before, who don't really know how to raise their seed round per se, or have spent ten years in the fields and know how to leapfrog the current fields and have a ten x better innovation, and their innovation can do more than one thing. So actually, I don't want to see more. I want to see the right deals. And took took a long time and seeing a lot of deals and sitting through a lot of conversations and pitches for a number of years to, to get to that place. We've invested just shy of 10 million in eight deals. We've invested 15 times. Our average check today is between 500K and a million to a startup. We like to see two to 3 million going into that round, depending on the dynamics. And they typically have relationships with strategic acquirers like a GE and a Siemens and a LabCorp and that kind of stuff, or we're not interested. So we've got this pretty big criteria because I, I was pretty risk adverse. You know, you, you describe me as a serial entrepreneur, Jerome, but I, I've had this investor mindset for a long time, even though I'm a value add operator. And, you know, how much can I reduce this risk? Could I just see the best five deals a year? Well, last year we saw 2000. This year I imagined about the same number. Maybe it's a little shy of that. Next year, I'm sure it'll be the same number again. And we're at this place where we're writing maybe four or five checks a year. Right. Really discerning. Wow. The percentage is just mind blowing that actually get funded. So well, it's not just that they're the best. It's that I've really reduced the risk. I, you know, everybody thinks all my friends, especially my wife works at Microsoft. Uh, all my friends in Seattle really think I must be really risky. And I'm like, no, I've got to reduce as much risk as I possibly can. This may, I can't say, I can't claim this. So I'm not claiming it, but this is what I think internally. This could be one of the safest investment classes that exists. Now, there's still going to be failures. It's a startup. But, you know, there's a lot of research into everything we touch before we ever touch it, right? And it's ready to now be technology. So I think there's a lot of misinformation about what a startup is that's able to get some capital, get a check written into it. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Because I, I, I met people who say, I got this great idea and they think they're going to get somebody to give them money. Oh, no, I was hearing your analogy the other day um, to, I've decided I'm going to fight, you know, I've never fought before. 
but I'm gonna go fight. <laughs> I'm gonna go fight Conor McGregor. <laughs> right? I've got no training. Can you write me a check <laughs> for 500k? <laughs> I haven't spent much time thinking about this. I don't see those companies like that. Uh, companies that have a chance to have just a really good idea, test out a little bit with a SaaS model, um, are in tech, right? And there's tons of funds. Literally, I saw this stat. This must be six, seven years old. You know, 3,000 funds in the United States, around 3,000 funds, don't hold me to it. 2,950 of them investing in tech and 50 of them investing in life sciences. <laughs> right? And so, so my thought was like, yeah, we can have, you know, this isn't true. And I use lots of tech. Let me be really clear. But I thought to myself, yeah, great. We can have another more efficient way to buy tennis shoes or we can save somebody's life. Um, that, that was the, the joke that was going on in my mind at the same time. And I've learned a lot from my tech counterparts. But I think that their job's much tougher because there's so much competition. And your ideas are boom or bust versus in med tech, your ideas uh, potentially um, have the chance to have some value, even if they bust, because there's such rich research behind it. But like the most important parts, you know, if you're going to go for funding, you need to know everything there is to know about that market, right? Before you go for funding. That's super important. Tons of research. Everything's a weird hyperbolic statement. You've got to know more than most of the folks in the field. And you've got to be able to talk intelligently with the top 2% of the field, right? And then you've got to be really well planned out. When you take somebody's money, it's no longer just your company. So imagine you just, you know, sold a piece, even for like a hundred bucks to your neighbor of your company, right? Your neighbor says, here, I'll just give you a hundred bucks. You see him and uh, he says, how's our company? And you're like, what? I'm the one working on it. But that's a little like what it's like. And so before you want to bring in more sophisticated amounts of money uh, beyond hundred dollars, you really need to think about how you're going to spend it understand what issues you're going to have in scaling it out, right? And what it's actually going to take to be able to go sell that company someday because very few companies actually go public in this world. I'm not against investing companies that go public. In fact, I think a couple of ours in our portfolio could, in spite of where the market is and the fact that we're you know, in a bear market, whether or not people are talking about it. Um, <laughs> I find it funny. Nobody really talks about this. <laughs> so inflation, inflation, inflation. That's all we talk about. <laughs> it's a bear. <laughs> let's call. Let's call. Let's call a uh, bird a bird. So you want to know what you have from a market standpoint and be able to talk the talk with the people who can talk the talk. What else yeah. is there? You need to be really, you're going to have like three kinds of folks diligence you if you're going to do well. One of them's going to be like what I like to describe as, as a CFO archetype. CFO archetype wants to go see everything, every page of everything, wants to figure out how to build maybe a system and that to capture everything you're doing to understand it all. Um, and so they're, they're a person who's probably been an operator somewhere, um, has worked on some deal somewhere or been part of a sale somewhere. And they're going to potentially help one of their friends or be an investor themselves. So I'm going to call them the CFO archetype for one. Another one, you're going to have an entrepreneur who really had a lot of vision for something and see something in you and is betting on you for the vision, right? But even that person's going to hire a CFO type or somebody who's 50% of a CFO type. So you really have to be well thought out. But even if that person's willing to write a check, they're probably going to do a little digging 
to make sure what you say is true, depending on the check size, their net worth, and who you are, right? And then I think third is somebody who's kind of like an armchair person, right? Who's going to, who really doesn't know much about the field, um, who's had some success either um, through their family or through working at a cool big company like Microsoft or Amazon. And they have a lot of intelligence about, about things. And so they think logic alone will be able to get them to the problem. And if you're getting a lot of your ideas from these folks in a field, it means you really don't know your field that well. These folks are good at phenomenal logic patterns, um, but like anything, you need time to study. You can't expect to go fight Conor McGregor on day one. You want those guys. I have some, some of my best investors are, are tech and, you know, folks who made money in tech, executives at insurance companies, that kind of thing. And they can add a ton of value, but you've got to know where to point people to help you think about things, right? You, you're not going to get their neurons uh, on a problem that you're actually excited about until you know what, to, what the hardest things are to worry about. Okay. So you, What's a, how's that? Too much to digest, maybe, but there you no, go. No, I'm processing it because I think there's, you got to know who you're talking to. So you have to know your space. You got to know the people who are going to come look at the thing that you've been working on and how to package the information so that those people can receive it. But let's go a layer deeper. Like, when do you actually have a company that's fundable? So I think you have to have proof. For me, you know, one more thing I didn't add is I want to see clinical data. If you're at a tech company or whether you're starting, you know, a ditch digging business, like how do we know that it works? Tell us about that. Um, because if you want to move beyond the hundred dollars from your neighbor, who's going to ask you a lot of questions anyway, <laughs> right? Well, checks uh, ask the most questions. <laughs> right. You need to have validation. So. If you don't have validation, you can't get validation. I'm not sure what to tell you. Like this, this is the table stakes to start the conversation. You're going to have to work your way through it. You're going to have to work your way from scratch. So if you've got an idea on um, taking over the city's trash system or renting chairs at, you know, uh, lawn concerts in New York, start with something. Show me what happened. Right. Show me what, what's going on as a result of that. Don't come to me expecting any answers. Don't come to, don't go to any investor. And like, you know, that, again, that doesn't apply to me as much because I'm talking to an average of a PhD or somebody who's just studied so much in a field uh, or been in a field for so long um, that that doesn't happen. But this is just for the general audience. So th this part's really where I want to hone in because I think most people feel like I've got an idea. And now I need somebody to give me a check so I can get the validation. And you're saying, hold your horses. You need to get the validation before you ask for a check. That's table stakes for asking for a check. Typically you got to prove something somewhere. Yeah. And so data collection. It's only worth 2%. The execution's where it's at. They're phenomenal ideas out there. Every good idea you and I could put together on a board. There's a group who could come up with better ideas after a course of, you know, the same amount of time. So the ideas were something. I don't want to dismiss that at all, but it's really an execution of it. And how do you prove that you're going to execute that? You've got to give them some proof that your idea works. Otherwise, you're just an idea generation machine. A lot of people want to unlock their ultimate potential, but lack the strategy, support and stamina necessary to achieve their major goals. They often try to overcome these challenges by trying to do it on their own, causing frustration, fatigue, and eventually failure. 
we have developed a model for a center life, aka the red pill, to help them bolster their beliefs, gain clarity on their path to success, and provide accountability as they take action on their goals. When they take the red pill, they rapidly accelerate attainment of their goals and begin to experience a life of significance and impact. Want to find out more? Hop over to JeromeMyers.co. Now, let's get back to the episode. Well, I, I think generating the ideas was easy, right? I mean, it's, it's the details. You you play a coach, right? For one of the hats you wear, you play an investor for one of the hats you wear. You you've got to see for you to want to work with people, for you to want to invest in them, if you want to invest in projects, you're all about that validation. Actually, <laughs> we can do the work together, but if you go home and do nothing, don't call me, right? Like that was great for I can't a first help. call. Yeah, Thanks for I can't the chat. help if there's no implementation. So, all right, can you tell us about a company? where you made an investment and you were like, this is brilliant. And then it worked out as you expected. And then I want to hear a story of when it didn't work out because the check doesn't get written until you believe in the outcome. Right? So do you have two examples or have you only had winners? Yeah. So most of the stuff I've invested is doing well. Um, really well. Some of it, some of it's doing well, some of it's doing good and some of the rest of it's doing great. And it tends to be more on the great side for the stuff I've been doing. And, but again, part of that's because I have so much criteria, right? Like one of the group of guys we invested in sold 10 companies uh, for 15 billion cumulatively, right? I think it's a much higher number. I think there's maybe 12 or 15 companies for 20 billion. But the, the point is they, these guys know what they're doing. I like to add value, whether it's talking about a license or IP or, you know, cap tables but i like to say all these entrepreneurs would be just fine if i if we all you know went off went off a cliff in a bus <laughs> our portfolio would be just fine um, so, and that's one of my comforts in investing in the companies i invest in so a good story i met a company in uh san diego california um, who contacted one of my partners at the time and said hey we've got this idea that we can diagnose near anything from a couple drops of blood like, okay, we've heard this story, right? It's called Theranos. It didn't work out well. <laughs> but these guys had sold their last company to LabCorp, a public company. And they were back at it again. They said, hey, we've got an idea of how to leapfrog things. And we really know this prenatal diagnostics market. So, And we have a little data and we put in money of our own. So we went on to be the first investor in this company called Juno Diagnostics. And their first, their first test is actually a prenatal diagnostic test for gender at five weeks, and it's 95% accurate. So to give you an idea, a sonogram at 12 weeks is 75% accurate on the gender. Some of you may know, some of you may not know, gender reveal parties are on the rise. People really are excited these days and want to celebrate even more. And then there's also major issues with abortion in different, different uh, states. And so this is actually even more important to know, uh, potentially for some families, uh, what's going on. The other thing this test can do that they do is that, you know, there's five different kinds of common tests that everybody who's pregnant ends up getting, karyotyping, Down syndrome, that kind of stuff. And when you're done taking a couple drops of blood and getting information on your phone, because it literally is done at home, you don't have to go to a doctor, you just buy it over the counter. There's no FDA approval needed for uh, gender because it's not a diagnostic, right? It's just you're telling somebody what is. 
you drop it in the mail and uh, a few days later they'll give you information on these the rest of these tests at their you know at their clear lab in san diego so they launched in san diego recently i uh, invested in the company in 2018 they just launched their first product they're doing their first market launch and then they'll be going nationwide in short order we invested at a pretty low value and i think the next round will be over 100 million valuation most of the stuff we invest in is sub 15 million valuation so i like so to see some at the on the low end it sounds like I, i'm feeling pretty good i'm feeling pretty yeah. good and and management continues to execute not to say they haven't had their bumps which is fine but they continue to execute they do really really well they have an idea they spend a lot of time planning and then they spend lots of time executing on it and it's very obvious the company grew from the four founders to um, I think they're just shy of 50 employees now. So it's also like gratifying to see that part too. So like when you write a check into a company, what type of things do you feel are good uses of that capital? So they're coming to me probably in my field because they want to have more validation, clinical validation. Um, they want to have more patient data to say that it works. And so uh, there are two good uses I want to see more testing so that more people are interested in the product. And um, that ends up being a big percentage of it. And, you know, a lot of people think they know a lot about IP, but don't really have a cohesive strategy. And this is probably like even a lot of real estate investors, right? Um, I flipped houses. I'm flipping a house right now. Um, but like, could I know everything, even though it's a, you know, a much simpler problem than a life science company? No. <laughs> never <laughs> what as soon as you open a wall you welcome to a brand new world <laughs> yeah. and, it, and it involves another wall <laughs> you're gonna run into it again so i think that's the important thing to remember is you, you just can't know everything you gotta try and constrain the places where things can go wrong and build that into what the plan is on where to go right so Typically, they already know what they want to spend the money on. And I typically say, okay, raise a little more because maybe you need some extra runway after that's done. Or have you thought about, you know, how the next round works or, you know, that kind of thing. So maybe making sure that the places that they have some, some blind spots or just haven't put the time, the neuron time, maybe they actually know, but they haven't really given it so much thought. Having those conversations and making sure the plan matches that. That was really... Not what I expect you to say, because it's almost like I was expecting you to say, ooh, marketing or ooh, blah, 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 blah. And you're saying, no, we're going to continue to validate the experiment that they had to get more information because that makes us smarter instead of market related yeah. conversations. Exactly. Yeah, it's not really market much market relation in the beginning. It's just a lot of validation because then then you're ready to go to the market. And before I invest, there's plenty of validation for me, just that the proof point that somebody needs is different, right? So this is really making, if you think about this as a widget, you're helping them do experiments on the widget with the capital that you put into their company so that the widget... No experiment, to develop it further. Think about, actually, my my wife was uh, cleaning out a drawer in her closet and she found an iPhone 1. Right. Yeah. And I, and you know, uh, it was really interesting to see the iPhone one, right. And see uh, how cool it was to technology, but how different it is than the iPhone 13 that I hold and my hand still. And I'm saying, look, between generation one and 13, there's a lot of different 
things that will change. And this is a commercial product. How many variations did they have before it got to one, right? And so before you go to different people, it's not really about proving it. It works already. That's part of it. But how much of it are you ready to go show into a product like that, right? And that's maybe just an easy way for people to, you know, if you can't picture the iPhone 1 to 13, picture your TV when you were a kid, assuming you're over 25 or 30, right? The cathode TV versus the flat screen TV we have. We had a 57-inch TV at one point when I was 18, right? And it just took so much room. It was crazy. Now, now just, you know, it's like a big poster on a wall, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the generation jumps. You've got to figure that stuff out uh, for for uh, industry to be really interested in what you're up to. For commercial adoption, there's there's got to be a... For commercial there. adoption, because it's really, it's about efficiency. A lot of people who purchase you, you've got to understand a little bit about what's the driver of purchasing. So if, if BlackRock is purchasing something, that's because they can borrow at 1% effectively, despite what the interest rate is, right? So they just need to continue to buy more and more and more revenue. But that's the game, right, uh, for BlackRock. Now, if a company is buying you and they're public or they're about to go public, they're trying to buy you for the multiples on revenue they can get. So if they're trading at 13 times, you know, whatever the revenue is, and you're saying, hey, here's where it'll get. Um, they're saying, okay, we can finance this deal. <laughs> we can put it in. And just for buying it, you know, we go up in revenue, which is better for our total valuation, our market cap. Understanding that helps you figure out where you need to start, right? And the entrepreneurs I talk to in general and spend beyond, you know, one minute with have a really phenomenal, not, not clue. They're, they're teaching me. They're, they're masters in their domains lots of the time. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that you talked about the guy's track record and you said basically sold 15 or 20 companies and in the billions. And so that person made investing in the company. There's a group of three people. Two of them had done that a lot, but sorry, continue. But that team made it a no brainer. Right, the operational experience. No, it was it was also their innovation. Their innovation was 10x better than anything that ever been seen in the field before. I don't know if the uh, if the company's talking too much about it, but like a small preview of it is they solved they found a way to solve uh, issues like Venus leg ulcers, which have never been solvable before, and lots of people have tried to solve. So it's a simple piece of hardware that goes in um, and can be done outpatient procedure. So all these people who are bleeding out or having amputations or having lots of issues, it's not such a big issue anymore. Wow. It'll get wow. there. They need to scale it a little more, but that, that's where they're headed. So you, you talked about all of the funds that are in tech and they're looking for the next innovation and how that compares to kind of med tech or lifestyle. Life sciences. Life sciences. Is the multiple different? Like, is the multiple in life? Yeah, you're not likely to see as many um, billion-dollar companies come out of non-biotech in biology. Um, so the multiple is totally different. Um, and then lots of companies are willing to pick up IP that's valuable to a product line they already have. So that's also potentially different. I see like tech companies. You typically either have like massive success or massive failure. There's very little in between. And so, to some degree, I'll just tell you right now, Sequoia, unless they think that somebody else wants to buy it, 
probably doesn't care if you can get to two or three million in revenue. And Sequoia famously backed like uh, YouTube, the second most visited site ever, and Google, the first visited site ever, right? They were early investors and they were very early investors in YouTube and part of the Series A for, for Google. They want to invest in stuff that has a chance to be that ubiquitous, yeah. right? Unicorns. Uh, and, and forget unicorn. Just like when, when, they, when they invested in YouTube and when they sold YouTube, I don't think they got to unicorn value. It's do you have a chance to be really ubiquitous in helping people figure things out? And the fact that my dad's using you know, YouTube today and he was saying a good friend of his who's in his mid-80s is using you know, YouTube, like that's phenomenal. That's a testament to success of that technology. So there, when you say ubiquitous, you mean mass adoption, changing the way that people interact and right. engage in the world. Yeah. And the stuff I'm looking at is typically in a smaller, it's a niche of a niche. So it's in healthcare and it's a way you measure something that changes things. But I think it's the way that everything could be changed. Just as smallpox isn't such an issue in this country anymore, or it's not an issue in this country at all anymore. And worldwide, there's very few cases ever reported. That's the kind, I want to invest in stuff that will help lead to outcomes like that, right? That will eradicate the COVIDs of tomorrow. And COVID can be a political topic, so I'm not trying to say yay or nay. Though I you know, believe in vaccines, I just want to be clear about that. And I helped start an RNA company in my spare time, a COVID vaccine company. And the first COVID vaccine approved in India is built by is a license from a company I helped start. So I'm saying all of that to say that you want to be pretty thoughtful about where you're going to go with um, not just the spend, but the mistakes you're going to make along the way and how you're going to view the next big step of your purchase or your sale of another purchase of another company. So you can ultimately to a sale or the adoption of your company product so that you can make those major changes in the world. Huh. So most people are probably scratching their head and saying, my idea isn't that big. Does that mean that I'll never be able to get funding? No, 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 no. You know, there, if your idea is really cool and can help people, whatever it is, even if you're mowing lawns and you're trying to sell part of that business, you're potentially fundable. Not necessarily by a big VC, but somebody else will take notice if you can get to 500 lawns, meaning it's not just you anymore, right? And they're, you're doing it on a monthly basis. Somebody's willing to write you a check to be help, help you get to 5,000 lawns, right? Um, and you want to talk to them before you get to 500. You want to start to think about that. You want to talk to them when you're at 50 saying, hey, I know how to get to 200, and I'm going to call you when I get to 500, right? Um, because I don't know how to get to 2,000 exactly, but I will by then, <laughs> right? And it's not, you know, and I, and I want to get there much quicker than just organically. That's the time to bring in capital. If you can do something organically, probably shouldn't bring capital in. And not everything in this world should be grown inorganically. Let me be really clear about that. <laughs> Most things shouldn't be. We've got this uh, desire for more now, quicker. Right? <laughs> it's like, just because I can order a book on Amazon, get it same day now. Uh, and soon, you know, in the next few hours, doesn't mean anything, right? Like, if you've got a dream about something, go for it. It doesn't matter if it's scalable, whether it's fundable. If you've got a dream about something, go work on making it happen. Look for some validation for yourself. What would you need to see? Imagine you were convincing the 75-year-old self of yours to spend the time on that when you were young. Like, what would you need to see to actually care, 
what would, what would lead to significance for the quality of your life as a result of this success or failure? And both are the same, by the way, right? Like if you fail at something, you'll get better at something else. Yeah. And so what I find most interesting about your story, Neil, is you've never been scared to learn. You never felt like you had to be in the traditional system in order to get your education. Where did that come from? I don't think I knew how to fit in the traditional system. I faced um, a fair amount of prejudice growing up. I grew up in uh, Mesa, Arizona, and I don't think I ever kind of really fit in. So I never really tried to continue to fit in. I just got used to carving my own path. And so I used all of those experiences as fuel to say, okay, what do I want? Right? Because clearly I can't get the happiness from the things uh, external to me at those moments. And so what do I really want? And why do I want it? And, you know, it's the basics. You know, I want to love myself. I want to love the people next to me. I want to have good relationships and I want to have some success. And, you know, you make a list of these things. And then you start to understand, okay, well, that's not really about a path. That's just about you. And so now you've got to figure out what you want and where you want to go with that. I have just as much respect for somebody who cleans the, the, you know, the dishes at Denny's. That's a tough job, right? And as long as that person has a dream and knows what they want and that's helping fulfill, and maybe their dream is to send their kid to college or just to pay their rent monthly. If they're there, phenomenal. Yeah, I, I think that's beautiful because so many of us look for others to tell us what we should want and what we should do. And you're saying, no, the answer is within. And as long as you're satisfied with whatever the outcome is, then that should be enough. Is that fair? Yeah, exactly. If the if the twelve year old of you would be impressed and the seventy five year old would be satisfied, you're probably headed the right way. <laughs> I love that because I pick with people all the time. Because when I talk about Lamborghinis and Ferraris and stuff, they're like, "Why do you want that? Like, isn't that just gaudy?" And I'm like, "Well." When I went to the book fair, it was never to go get a Toyota Camry to put on my wall, right? Like the posters <laughs> on my wall. <laughs> it was Diablos. It was F40s. It was this is a little thing. We interrupt this podcast to bring you a commercial by Toyota. <laughs> <laughs> it was never about practicality and reliability. That, that wasn't the answer. It was extravagance and excitement. So... Neil, I always wrap up these podcasts with one question and you've had so many like zingers in here. I, I hope you got one more. Sure. For us. <laughs> so much to unpack. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's so good. We're probably gonna have to have you back because I am totally intrigued with getting checks written into startups and what exits mean and so on and so forth. But the question that I have to wrap up this episode is what's the one thing you want the listeners to take away? Be yourself and try and understand what that means for you, from you. I got to ask, how'd you figure out who yourself was for you? I think I'm still figuring it out, right? That's part of the human experience. I think it's evolving and changing and the decade you're in will definitely, the decade you're in, the socioeconomic class you're in, the zip code you have will determine a lot of what you think related to that. And you still have to figure out what that means for yourself every day, right? Um, and take the time to do it. You've got to set the time aside to understand what that means. I love that. I love that. I, I've never, 
identified it or codified it or set it as be yourself. I just remember when I was in this period of discovery and I questioned everything. It was right after I started asking the two magic questions. What was it all for? And is this really it? And what I found was I was programmed to your point about the zip code, to the to the point about the house that you live in. I was programmed to believe and see things in a specific way. When I peel back the layers after questioning it at all, I realized, wait, these aren't my ideas. These are ideas somebody else gave me. And I don't know that they actually hold true for me. And it's a really scary place to be. But if you walk through that, then you have a different understanding of what life is and how you can engage, interact with people and make it a life worth living. So, Neil, I, I really appreciate that last little nugget of wisdom. So you, you're a dream catcher in the truest definition as we define it here. And I'm just so grateful that you're able to be so generous with your time with us today. Thank you so much. I took the red pill a long time ago. Thanks for having me. (laughs) To the listeners, your dreams should be real. We'll talk soon. Thank you for joining the tribe today. We would love to hear from you. Please don't forget to rate, like, and share. Perhaps someone you know could benefit from what we've discussed. Until the next time, remember that your dreams should be real.